I'd like you to open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 8. We've been ministering for many weeks on the attributes of God, and in particular a couple weeks on God's holiness. And we said that when it comes to God's holiness, that is the perfection by which He is by nature morally separate and unique from all other creatures. The Hebrew, the, both the Hebrew and the Greek speak of being separate or set apart. And it speaks of God's absolute separateness from what He created. And last week we were showing this in three different ways. His holiness is revealed by His deity. It is revealed ceremonially. And it is revealed in the Bible morally. And we were talking about these three particular things. Now what I'd like to minister on this morning is God's righteousness, God's justice, God's wrath, God's long-suffering, God's mercy. Not all of that, of course, in great detail, but the beginning three, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's wrath. As we speak on these things, it will help us to understand then where it comes in to God's love and God's grace and God's mercy. And these are moral attributes of God which He requires of us to manifest toward our fellow men. He commands us to love one another, to be merciful to one another, to be gracious to one another. These are things that He is and He expects us to be, which really helps us to understand, first of all, God's righteousness. Because God's righteousness is His own standard of perfection. God is perfect in all His ways. In fact, the Bible speaks in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 17. It speaks about the plummet. The plummet is the standard. The plummet is, uh, God is saying that He is the plummet. He is the standard of what is right and wrong. All things are to be measured by His perfection. That shouldn't be hard for us to understand or receive because... Frequently, you'll see people that will wear a little band. I don't know that we see it as much now as we used to, but people used to wear a band on their wrist that had WWJD on it, and they were raising the question, what would Jesus do? I mean, that, that is something that caught on in Christianity real quick, and it was something very practical to follow. I thought it was you know, a very uh, unique thing to do to remind people of how they should live because God created us and He created us to be conformed unto His image. He's our standard of what is right and wrong. In fact, in Romans 8, 28 and 29, actually verse 29, He says, For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed unto the image of His Son. When we were all created, we were created in the image of God. But that image has become marred because of sin. And being born again, we are to be delivered from that mindset of the world and to be transformed back unto the image of God. Or, as the Bible speaks of it sometimes, as the fullness of Christ. I mean, Romans 12, just another verse. There are many, many ways we could apply this, but... Paul is speaking about the importance of having our mind renewed and our calling as a Christian. And he says in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice so that it is holy and acceptable unto God. And this is our reasonable service. Our service to God is that we're to present our life unto Him to whereby it is acceptable. That, that Paul says that is what your calling is and that is not unreasonable for God to ask. And he says the way this is done is to not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed. He says be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're to be transformed again unto the 
image of God. We're to be conformed, Paul says in Romans 8, unto his image. He is the standard that we are to live live by. Now, you can see several scriptures on the board. I don't know that we'll take the time to read them all. John 14, 6. Jesus said, for example, in Matthew 5, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. One of the ways he did was by removing the legalism that people had taken they had taken what was righteous and good and right, and they turned that into a, a form of self-righteous living, which God never intended the law to be that for that reason. We'll talk about that a little bit in a, in a moment. Jesus came along and he lived perfectly the righteousness of the law before us and fulfilled it. He gave its its proper intent and meaning. And so we can look at his life and know, as he is in this world, so am I to be. John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see him, what is right and what is wrong? Look at Jesus. He's the standard. First Peter 2, 21, when he's talking about the cross and how that on the cross there was no guile, no disrespect, no railing, and so forth. He was a, a perfect example of submission unto his Father's will and to the greatest of trials. And we're told that he gave that example unto us that we might, First Peter 2.21, follow in his steps. And he says, Who knew no sin, neither was guile found within his mouth. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4 speaks of God, God's righteousness. God is holy and he is righteous. His righteousness is that uh, that standard that His holiness requires, that He requires out of us, His creation, to live because we have been made in His image. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. He says, He is the rock. That's His immutability. He does not change. His work is perfect. There's no, obviously, we've seen that by studying the attributes of God. And all of his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without, and without iniquity, just and right is he. There are many ways that the, uh, the Bible would explain it. Righteousness is, is that living that perfect standard of what is right and what is wrong. Leviticus 19.2, we're close by, we might want to read it. The Bible expresses God's holiness and righteousness in many, many ways. Here he says, for example, and this is entering into uh, similar to the Ten Commandments, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 1 and 2, he says, Speak unto, The Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and saying to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And of course, Peter requotes that again in uh, 1 Peter 2, and Jesus emphasizes it in Matthew 5.48 where he says, Be perfect as I am perfect, saith the Lord. And many, many places. So God's righteousness is that standard of perfection that he lives, that he likewise requires of all of his creatures. Now there are some things that God himself does that he does not permit us to do, but at the same time God does not require something of us that he doesn't do. He is righteous, and he expects that same righteousness out of you and I. God's justice is his absolute fairness in his treatment of how they conform to that standard of righteousness. If we don't conform unto God's standard of righteousness, then God's justice comes forth. It's all summed up. I mean, the law and what God requires of us is all summed up in two verses, two things. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind and strength. I've paraphrased it on the screen, as you can see. And to love thy neighbor as thyself. And the bottom line is that if we will live that, God says if you'll conform to that standard of righteousness and live that, I will bless you accordingly. But if you don't, then I won't. It's the bottom line. If you want to live right, you'll be blessed. If you don't live right, you won't be blessed. It's real simple. We say that, and yet it just amazes me how that people just seem to turn 
a deaf ear to that, and then they wonder why they have problems in their life. Because they just are constantly making excuses for things that are not pleasing unto God and uh, blaming others and ignoring circumstances and doing what they want. God blesses conformity with rewards, but nonconformity, he says, with punishment. You can't, we cannot live, we cannot sin without impunity. We just can't. The law of sowing and reaping applies unto all. Look at Romans chapter 2. I mean, this is what Paul is emphasizing in Romans 1. He talks about the unregenerate, the Gentiles. And then he goes on in Romans 2 and he says, well, then are things better for the Jew? And he says it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. Listen to Romans 2. He says, therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, and wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest turns around and does the same thing. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. We've read Romans 1 many, many times. But we're talking about God's justice here. And because men have not conformed to God's standard of righteousness, Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men. See? And that's what Paul's talking about. God's wrath against unrighteousness. And now he's starting to get into justice. We are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them and does the same things, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Now, a verse like verse 4, we haven't really studied in depth yet on God's goodness and God's long-suffering and God's mercy. See, as we do that, that'll that'll begin to start giving you the ability to have that balance on what he's saying. But let's go on. After the hardness and a penitent heart, you treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. God's justice is his absolute fairness in his treatment of how people conform to the standard of righteousness which he has revealed. And that's what he's saying here. He will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing. In other words, if we continually, regularly, patiently live righteously and godly, you know, no one lives sinlessly perfect. We know that. God knows that. He's provided a means to whereby if we sin, then we can repent and seek forgiveness and be cleansed of that. That's verse John 1, 9 and so forth. But our goal as a Christian is to continually, regularly, patiently strive to be conformed to the image of Christ. If we do that, he says, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing Seek for glory and honor and in corruption, they'll be blessed with eternal life. And in corruption, to, if we seek for, for well-doing, we'll have glory, we'll have honor, we'll have uh, immorality, we'll have eternal life. We'll be blessed in this life. But unto them that are contentious, hard-headed, rebellious, they don't want to be yielded unto God, and they don't obey the truth, then what they get is unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish. And God is not unfair in His punishment or the manifestation of His judgment and justice upon people who are disobedient. And he says, every soul of man that does evil, whether he's a Jew or whether he's a Gentile, doesn't matter. That's Paul's point. Glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There's no respect of person with God. As many as have sinned without the law shall perish without the law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And so he says, it doesn't matter whether or not they know the law. Well, the bottom line is, how are you living? 
Are you being righteous and are you living what God says in His Word or are you not? If you live right, you'll be blessed. If you don't live right, you won't. That's about a mind. We could almost end it right there and say we're done. That's it. It's so simple. Well, God's justice then is His absolute fairness in His treatment on how men conform. We cannot pick and choose at the Word of God. We can't say, well, this I'll do, but I don't think this is necessary. I don't think this is important. You know, we, some some Christian ministries, I listen to them, and, and, they're, and they're a blessing. I mean, they've got the message. And they're telling people to, to live the right way and to do what is right, and they don't compromise. And then you see some others come along, and they are chopping away at the Word and compromising at the Word and making people think, that this, that, and the other is not important, and you want to just shake your head and say, quit preaching. Don't call yourself a minister of God. Because they're misleading people. They're false prophets. They're deceiving people into thinking that they can live any way they want and sin with impunity, and nothing's going to happen. And that's just not true. Proverbs 22.6.2 says, The curse causeless shall not come. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You know, I, I, I've i read Deuteronomy 28. I'd like you to turn over there. I've read it many, many, many times in my life as a minister. And I'm sure many, many times that you've read it. But just stop. I wasn't going to do this this morning. But just stop and think for a moment. Because this is such a practical area of the Word. And don't give me this. That's Old Testament stuff because... In this church, we should know better. The law is holy and righteous and good. And unless you're going to take the Old Testament and follow the letter of something and turn it into a license to whereby you feel you can stand before God and say, I did this, this, and this, so I, oh, you owe me salvation. That's what legalism is, turning it into a license to whereby you think you can be saved by keeping it. The law is a revelation of what is right and it is so perfect and pure that nobody can live it. But it's to put us on our face to whereby we can seek for God's mercy when we don't and receive a new heart, receive Christ as our Savior, and strive to be conformed unto His image. But Deuteronomy 28 is the law of sowing and reaping, and it's so practical because it's just it's down to earth. It's my life. It's your life. It's where we live. The bills that we pay. The bodies of health that we have, our business dealings, our jobs, the crops that we grow. It's just life in general. And God lays it out in absolute fairness in what we're saying. He says, I am a righteous, just God. My standard of righteousness is you obey my word. If you'll do that, I'm a just God and I'll bless you for it. He would be unjust not to bless the righteous. But he also turns right around and he says that if you're righteous and if you do what is right, I'm a just God and I will reward you for your faithfulness. And so this is what God's justice is all about. It shall come to pass that if anyone will hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and do all his commandments which he commands this day, then here's what will happen. If we, if we're, if we do what is right, God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. I mean, I believe America has been set on high among all the nations on the earth because she lives righteously in many, many, many ways. That doesn't mean to say she's a perfect nation. By far not. And the more the, liberal, the liberals seek on turning us away from what is godly and right, then the more we're going to find ourselves under God's judgment and wrath. But think about it, friends. Think about it. What what other nation in the world gives like this nation gives? I mean, practically every trouble spot that arises on the globe, what country is it that rises up to help people in their needs? Medically, physically, with food and money and support? This nation does. This nation gives and gives and gives. And it's treated with criticism, lies, 
disrespect. And what does it do? It just keeps on giving and showing kindness and love. It gives and gives and gives. Not, and and that, that's a manifestation of God's grace, mercy, and goodness. And it's because we have some good people that are in government that have set up laws for things for people to follow. Why we should keep on praying for this government. He says, if you will do this, I'll set you above all the nations on the earth. All these blessings will come on thee and overtake thee. Verse 3, blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. In other words, your businesses will be blessed. If you're a farmer, a rancher, your cattle will be blessed. Your business, your job, and so forth. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground. Your gardens, your trees, your children. The fruit of your cattle, the increase of your kind, the flocks of your sheep. They were shepherds. They were farmers. He says, your cattle will reproduce. They'll be healthy. They'll be strong. Blessed will be your basket and your store. I mean, we can apply that when you go to the grocery store. What do you do? You get a basket. You put your food in it. When you go out to shop, you'll be blessed. Blessed shalt thou be when you go in. Blessed shalt thou be when thou go out. Everything that you do, you're going to be blessed with. The Lord shall cause thine enemies to rise up against thee and be smitten before thee. They shall come out against thee one way and they'll flee before thee seven. He says, I will be vindicating you, watch over you, and protecting you. And on and on. But he turns that around. He says, like in verse 11, you'll be plenteous and good, the fruit of your body, the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. God will open up his good treasure of the heavens to give you the, the seasons, the rain, the things that you need for your crops to grow, and so forth. He's just telling them, I'm going to bless you in all these different ways. All you got to do is one thing. Obey the voice of the Lord. Or do that which is right. But if we don't, then he says, verse 15, it should come to pass that if you do not hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God to do His commandments and His statutes, which I command thee this day, all these curses shall come upon thee. And they're way too long for us to read. But he says you'll be cursed in your business. You'll be cursed in your uh, farming. You'll be cursed every time you when you go to the store. In other words, you're going to be financially drained and things are going to be taking, being taken away from you financially. You'll be cursed in your the fruit of your body, problems with your children the fruit of your land, the increase of your animals, cursed shalt thou be when you go in, when you go out. Everything is just the opposite. The curses of life. Now the Christian is expected trials of his faith so we can release faith against Satan and the powers of darkness and, and show our faith toward God and release of his uh, promises and so forth. So we're not suggesting that every problem that comes along is necessarily the curse, some of them are trials and tests of our faith. If you're living, living right, we should rise up against Satan because he's trying to put the curse upon us whom Christ has redeemed us from. But at the same token, if we're not living right, God can chasten his children and the curse can be a manifestation of that because he's spanking for that which is unrighteous living. So God's justice is his absolute fairness in his treatment of how people conform to his standard of righteousness, which is revealed in his word, and it's also given to us by his spirit. God's wrath, well, God created men in his image. This is kind of summarizing up what we've said. He created men in his image, and he wrote his law upon their hearts. I didn't read this in Romans 2, but when Paul made the statement there that it didn't matter whether a guy, a man or a woman was a Jew or Gentile, whether they were raised under the law or not raised under the law, he said that really doesn't matter because the law is written on every man's heart. The righteousness of the law. Every man knows that it's wrong to kill, to steal, to lie, to commit adultery, and so forth. Romans chapter 2. I'll just read it real quickly. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles which have not the law, that is the Old Testament, recorded and written to them, because they're not Jews... They do by nature the things that are contained in the law, 
These having not a law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and there's also meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. God made us in his image. We have a conscience. I guess I, from my side, the most significant thing would be to say, if you want to live righteously, then seek to obey your conscience from within. The conscience needs to be enlightened. And the more knowledge you get about the Word, then the more your conscience is going to be able to reveal what is right and what is wrong. But if you live by your conscience, you'll be blessed. You don't? You won't. 1 Timothy chapter 1. The Bible says that God created all men in His image. He wrote the law upon their hearts because that law that is written upon their hearts is a revelation of His holiness. Here's another scripture that goes along with Romans 7 where Paul said the law was holy and righteous and good. Here's another one. I read this because I there are some Christians out there that have got this attitude of antinomian, which is anti-law. And I've run into it before and they've got, they seem to think that in Christianity we're not under any kind of commandments. I guess we can just live any way we want and it doesn't matter. That's a deception. That is nonsense. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says, We know, this is New Testament by the way, we know the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. We're to use the law, the revelation of the law, lawfully. It was never given to us to whereby we do some external thing and then stand before God and say, Okay, you owe me now because I've done thus and such. It's a, it's a revelation of what is right and wrong. And since no man can live it, it's to put us on our face and look to God's mercy and to look for a new heart which will enable us to begin to start living it. No man can live it in his sinful condition. He needs to be born again. He needs to be regenerated. There's no way. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane murders of fathers, mothers, Menslayers, whoremongers, them that defile themselves with mankind, men stealers, liars, perjured persons, and if there be anything other than anything other that is contrary to sound doctrine, he talks about homosexuality and so forth. I mean, again, you just have to shake your head. I think I read this morning where uh, Tammy Faye—I don't know what her new name is—passed away from cancer. You know, in her latter days, she was just justifying homosexuality and saying that it was okay and everything else. And I thought, my, I thought, what people won't do to try to promote their Hollywood lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? I mean, people talk about PTL. PTL built millions of Christians out of millions of dollars, friends. That was not a Christian organization. It was not. Just because somebody puts the name of Christ on something does not make it Christian. Just like Mormonism, for example, is not the truth. And yet they call themselves the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. And the men that went to prison for their crimes got exactly what they deserved because they broke the law. And that's what Paul's saying here. The law isn't made for a righteous man. A righteous man doesn't need a law. But an unrighteous man does. Law carries with it punishment. I mean, what happens when law carries with it punishment and that helps to keep sin in check? As a Christian, we shouldn't need the punishment of law hanging over our head to obey the law. We should just want to obey the law because God said, obey those that have made the laws. Take driving, for example, a very uh, a practical thing. We should not have to see the state trooper in the median clocking to drive the speed limit. Now, I know sometimes, you know, your foot gets heavy, you go on. I'm not going to make excuses for that. I understand that. Some people, though, you know, you're in a big hurry, and you're racing down the interstate, and somebody will see that trooper, and they'll go right on by, and then all of a sudden you'll see him cut out. What's the first thing out of their mouth? Shoot. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because now they know they're going to get the sword for their disobedience. The right thing to do is drive the speed limit, and then you don't have to worry about him sitting there. 
They don't pick up non-speeders. And I know, and I've heard all the other nonsense, but you know what what I'm talking about. That's what Paul here in principle is saying. The law is a manifestation of what is right and wrong. But here's here's the problem. Men are rebellious. God created men in His image. He created them to be righteous. He created them to be like Himself. And men are rebellious. They don't want to live what God has told them to live. They're selfish, self-centered. They're rebellious. They're stubborn. And so God has no other choice than to manifest forth His wrath. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Stubbornness. Selfishness, self-centeredness. God says, don't get angry. And people say, I don't care, I'm going to get angry. It makes me angry to think I can't get angry. Sometimes people will say. God says, don't falsely judge people. I don't care. I know I'm right. They're wrong. They'll falsely judge. God says, in many, many ways, He tells us to do things. People disobey that because they're stubborn and rebellious. Here's what God said to the children of Israel in the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I've nourished and I've brought up children, and they've rebelled against me. That's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against our Maker. It is choosing to do what we want to do in spite of what he wants for us. In Romans 1.18, I've read it before, they hold back truth by the way that they live. They choose to be rebellious and stubborn toward God. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 11. Sin is rebellion. It's stubbornness. God has created us and made us to live a certain way. And the attitude of men and women today is, I don't care. This is what I'm going to do. Proverbs chapter 17. I was thinking Proverbs 7. That isn't right. Proverbs 17. He says, A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. A divine sentence is in the lips of the king. His mouth transgresses not in judgment. Here's what I wanted to read. Verse 11. A just... I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I'm Proverbs 17. What am I looking at? And verse 11. An evil man seeketh only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger shall be sent against him. And there are many, many, many passages that are just like it. So because God's wrath is manifested against unrighteousness, people think he has an attitude of, well, I don't think God cares. God does care. And his his wrath is manifested forth against it. That wrath is God's hatred towards sin. Proverbs chapter 6, God hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, and look at it here in verse 16. He hates sin. He says in verse 16, These six things does the Lord hate. Seven, yea, seven, he says, are an abomination unto him. The proud look. You know, the... the, snobbishness, nose in your air, the arrogant attitude, the snicker, the cynical remark. I can't believe you would do that. No, you wouldn't because you're perfect. That type of attitude. The proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, Feet that are swift in running to mischief. I guess that's the gossip. A false witness that speaks lies. And he that sows discord among the brother. A lot of that has to do with the tongue, doesn't it? And the Bible says that God hates that sin. Psalm chapter 7 and verse 11. You see, God's wrath is the manifestation of His hot displeasure against sin. It's not an attribute. I said this last week. Don't don't say that God's wrath is an attribute because that's incorrect. An attribute is something that cannot be changed because God is immutable, remember? But His wrath can be changed. His wrath can be stayed. 
In fact, he wants his wrath to be stayed and changed. But there's only one way to do it. There's only one way to stop God's wrath from coming upon the life of his creation. Only one way. And that's by the atonement of his son. That's it. In Psalm chapter 7 and verse 11, he says, God judges the righteous and is angry with the wicked every day. This is talking about his wrath. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He has bent his bow. He's made it ready. His bow is up in the air, and it's ready to swing, and it's ready to come forth. He has prepared for him the instruments of death. He hath ordained arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth is really a, a, a poor transla- translation. It should be, he perverteth with the he perverteth or twists with iniquity. In other words, he takes what is righteous and right and he twists it and he distorts it. That's what sin is described in the Bible in different ways. And that's what he's talking about. He distorts and, and twists the truth with iniquity. He has conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. And the man that's done that, well, he's dug a, he has made a pit, he's dug it, and he's fallen into the very pit that he dug for himself. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violence dealing shall come down upon his own pate. The pate is the crown of your head. So what he's talking about there is God's holy indignation against sin, which is what God's wrath is. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, and other places speak of how that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. God requires of us to live righteously and godly in this present world. His justice is the treatment, His fair treatment upon those who don't conform to that standard. Or if they do conform to this standard, He is just and right to reward those that are faithful. And His wrath is that form of justice that comes forth. So, raising the question, I mean, obviously what we've said is pretty solemn. I've only touched on it for maybe a half an hour. But it's pretty solemn when you stop to think about God's wrath. And God's wrath is manifested in the Bible as much as God's love. It is not a blemish on His character. And yet, very few churches will even teach on it. I taught on it one time in a church down south. The church was just dead silent for an hour. And afterwards, a man came up to me and he said, I have never heard a sermon in my whole life on the wrath of God. And I said, yet it's in the Bible. Stress from cover to cover. So how can we meet such strict demands that the law is righteous and good and we're to live the righteousness of the law? How can we do that? God doesn't ignore it. If we don't live up to the standard of righteousness, God doesn't turn His head. That'd be sin on God's part. That To be indifferent to sin is just as much, just as guilty as the man that's committing it. Look at Psalm 50 and verse 21. Psalm 50 and verse 21. People seem to think that God is just so easygoing and ignores sin and turns His head. No, that's not true at all. In fact, he emphasizes that. He says here in verse 16, Under the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou should take my covenant in thy mouth? Seest thou hatest instruction, and castest behind me my words behind thee. When you saw a thief, you consented with him. You've been partakers with adulterers. Instead of uh, admonishing and rebuking people that are stealing and committing adultery, they just laugh and go along with it. They think it's funny, or they just condone it in some way. Thou givest thy mouth evil, thy tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against thy brother, and slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silent. Thou thoughtest I was altogether such a one as thyself, but I will reprove thee, and I will set them in order before thine eyes. And so God doesn't is not indifferent. He doesn't just overlook sin. 
He judges them. People seem to think that if they commit something wrong and the roof doesn't cave in, then it must be okay, so they just keep on heading in that same direction. Well, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8 real quick with me because that's a deception. If you get away, if you do something wrong and God doesn't immediately chasten it and correct it, that doesn't mean that he was indifferent to it and he didn't care. It just means that he was merciful and long-suffering at that point. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. They misinterpret that. We better not misinterpret that. God's mercy is shown to us in being patient. What is God's long-suffering? Well, God is patient. He's long-suffering. And that's a manifestation of His mercy. Romans 15.5 talks about the patience of God. He doesn't instantly manifest His wrath. And the reason why that He doesn't do that is because He's long-suffering. And what He desires more than anything else is that men will stop sinning, they will repent, they will cry out to mercy, get a new heart, and they will turn and they'll walk and live in a new direction. What good does it do to judge them and destroy them and take away that opportunity to turn? He'd rather have them repent, turn, change, glorify Him, live right, be salt and light upon the earth, be an example and testimony of His mercy and His love and His grace and His long-suffering. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 18. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He says here in verse 23, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Now God hates sin. But at the same time, there's another side to God, and that is that He's long-suffering, and that He's merciful and gracious. He's still holy and righteous and just. He will punish the wicked. There's no question about it. Uh, you know, like I said last week, some big-name minister, some big televangelist, huge church, decided, you know, got his mind into the into circumstance, and he just said, you know, I just can't see there being a hell in the afterlife. If there's any hell, it's here on earth right now. And so he just didn't said he wasn't going to believe in hell anymore. He said, I just can't imagine someone's grandmother being punished eternally for their sins. Well, that grandmother is nothing more than a rebellious, selfish, self-centered, ungodly woman. The Bible says that she will suffer eternity in a in a flaming fire. It doesn't matter how we think what we think about it. We better take God at His word for what He says, and He speaks often of His wrath being manifested upon the wicked in the form of eternal punishment. I don't get my mind into it. I just let God tell me what He says in His word. He has and leave it at that. That's what faith is all about. That's what our faith is. His faith is in some book, some feeling, some something that he, he can pick apart. He has faith in his own mind's idea of what God is or what God isn't. My faith is what is in what God has revealed himself to be in his word. But does God have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No. He says, have I any pleasure that the wicked should die, saith the Lord, and not that he should return from his ways. And he goes on and he says in verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord. Wherefore, turn you yourselves and live. God cries out, and I think Ezekiel 33, without turning over there, and speaks about looking for, a, for an intercessor that will build up the hedge. God's wrath, he wants that to be appeased. He would rather have his creation repent, turn, and do that which is righteous and right. And so that period in which he permits a man to live is a period of his long-suffering, 
waiting for that person to repent and to turn. In the case of Noah, well, 120 years, the Bible says, that Noah was in the building of the ark. Look at Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. Noah was in the building of that ark 120 years. Why did it take so long? Was it because the tools were just so primitive? You know, they didn't have the tools like we've got today to whereby you could construct something like that maybe in a few months. 120 years? That's, that's a lifetime. Far beyond that. Was it because of a lack of modern tools? Well, we don't know what he had. The flood says... After the flood, everything was destroyed. He might have had some really modern tools that we don't know of. But in either case, that 120 years was not a manifestation of primitive tools and so forth. It was a manifestation of the long-suffering of God because all that time, Noah was answering questions and preaching righteousness, telling people to repent and to turn that one day God's wrath was going to be manifested in the form of a flood. And they all snickered and they all laughed until the day that the door got shut. Without reading all of it, we're told here in verse 9 of Second Peter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness. We're saying God just does not let men sin with impunity and He doesn't overlook it, let it go by. Nothing happens, so I guess that means I'm all right. No, it says he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come unto what? Under repentance. He talks about Noah over in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20. And he says here, for example, well, let's back up a little bit. He says, Christ has suffered, verse 18, for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which of old time were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. 120 years. That was the long-suffering of God that was waiting. You know, sometimes people raise question about verse 19, which says that he went and preached to the spirits in prison. I don't want to get into that verse, but he did not go to hell and preach the gospel after the cross. I mean, that's what we're taught today, and that's nonsense. Those that died waiting for the flood to come in Noah's day, the word does not mean preach the gospel. It doesn't say preach the gospel. It doesn't say that by which he went and preached. Does it say he went and preached the gospel? No. It was heralded throughout all of Hades, the realm of the departed spirits, that Christ was victorious. Sin was conquered. It was a, it was a proclamation. It's over. It's finished. It's done. He didn't get down to hell and try to give people a second chance or some nonsense like that. It's amazing what people will try to read into a verse. And if they were students of the Greek, they would know that means to herald. It was a proclamation. It doesn't say anything about gospel there. Don't get me started. But anyways, it was a proclamation of the victory that had been accomplished at the cross. Because they were waiting and waiting. All they saw was a lamb. They didn't understand it was a type and a figure of Christ who was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But why did God wait for 120 years in the days of Noah? Why? Because he's long-suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all men should come under repentance. Look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 22. God's long-suffering is his patience in waiting and uh, that men giving them an opportunity to turn, to repent, and to change before their life is snuffed out. Because once it is, there's no turning back. There's a great gulf fixed. In Romans 9.22, But this waiting and long-suffering on the part of God is not a weakness on His part. It's just a manifestation of His mercy. 
Don't misinterpret what is there. And sometimes God's long-suffering is really a manifestation of the power of His wrath that's being built up. This might be a little bit complicated for you to understand, but let the Bible say it for what it says. If you look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 16, Paul here starts to uh, come into a statement. Let's see if I want to start there. Let's start at verse 15. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that that by, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Now think about this for a minute. When you think of Pharaoh resisting Moses, what do you think of? God's judgment, God's wrath. And then he goes on to say, Therefore he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, he hardeneth. Thou wilt say unto me, Well, why does he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? No, man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why have you made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? And the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? In one sense, God's long suffering is a manifestation of his love waiting for men to repent. But there's another side to that coin in that sometimes his long suffering is a manifestation of his wrath letting sin come to a head to whereby when he judges them, it will be with a far worse judgment. Because he's God. And his wrath is not a blemish. You'll have to think that one through. But that's what he's saying. He could have stopped Pharaoh after the first judgment. Why did he let it go on and on and on? Was he really trying to give Pharaoh a chance to repent and turn? No, he said he was hardening Pharaoh's heart. He was hardening it to whereby he could bring forth greater power of judgment upon Egypt for their sins. Otherwise, he could have stopped it quicker. But he let those plagues and judgments go on and on because he was bringing forth righteous indignation against a nation that had turned against false gods and against him and against his people by turning them into slaves. Well, I'm not going to delabor on that one, but that's really what he's saying. To reject God's Redeemer is to reject his love, his grace, and his mercy. I'd like to close with one verse, and then when we come back, I want to start ministering on God's mercy, God's grace, God's love. These are all attributes of God. And the reason why they have been given unto us, revealed unto us, It's not only so that we can be partakers of Christ and His forgiveness and His life, but God expects us to be as merciful as He is merciful. In fact, it's a beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Obtain mercy. We are to be merciful. We are to be gracious. We are to be long-suffering. We are to be loving. We are to be kind. These are fruits of the Spirit, and we know we're a Christian when we're bearing these fruits. If you're just impatient, and you are quick to condemn, and a hard person to whereby you can't uh, release people from their sins without dragging it up and rubbing their nose in it all the time, That's not the Spirit of God. So we'll talk about that later. But Ephesians chapter 2. Just one. We may read the whole chapter. Let's read about this. And I want to close. To reject God's Redeemer, which is long-suffering, is waiting for us to receive Christ as our Savior, to repent and turn. It's really rejecting His love and His grace and His mercy. What is God's 
love, grace, and mercy? Well, His grace is unmerited favor to the undeserving sinner. His mercy is the pity and compassion that He has toward them. His love is the reason it was shown. And you can see this in Ephesians 2 when you look at the order that's here. You hath He quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. We're in a time past when you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our life in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Because we were not living righteously, we were rebellious, we had a nature that was sinful, then we were called children of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, and for His great love wherein He loved us. That's the motive. Why did God choose to send His Son to whereby we could be redeemed and delivered from His wrath? Why did He do that? John 3.16, For God so loved the world. For God who is rich in mercy... And for His great love wherein He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, He has quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And He's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places, that in ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. He would rather be known as a God of grace and love and mercy and kindness and compassion than a hothead, than a God of wrath. I, that's not a right thing to say, hothead, because he's not. But he doesn't want to be known as a God of wrath, but a God of love and mercy, kindness. Yet he is a God of wrath. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Now look at the order. Because of God's love, he had mercy upon us. Verse 4. God, who is rich in His mercy and for His great love, He has bestowed grace upon us, which is unmerited favor, verse 7, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace. And how do we obtain that favor? Verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. God is loving, God is merciful, God is gracious, but no one will receive of that unless they believe it. We've got to release the faith. That's our responsibility. And faith results in believing to a change in the heart to whereby it results to a change in the life. So God, he says here, is God is holy and righteous and just and a God of wrath, but he wants that to be changed to whereby... He can be a God to those who repent and turn, a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And He wants that so that His creation will live righteously by following in Christ's steps and live as He lived when He walked this earth. God wants us to be a people that are long-suffering, merciful, gracious, kind, forgiving. That's what He wants us to be. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to help these truths get into our heart to whereby we can recognize, know intuitively that you are a, a holy God who has nothing to do with sin, that has created a people to be con that, are, that were to be like you when they lived upon this earth. But due to sin, they turned away from that, lived unrighteously. And now you've provided a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to whereby they can be saved from that ungodly, unrighteous life, be washed and cleansed and renewed, to whereby now we can be conformed unto your image. We can go back to living what is righteous and good, Right. You've promised if we do that, you'll bless us for us. But if we don't, if we're stubborn, rebellious children, we'll only build up for ourselves the curse and indignation. And if we keep going, even wrath. 
But you're, you're a loving, merciful, gracious God. You don't want to do that. You want to bless us. You want to help us. You want us to have health, prosperity, soundness of mind. But you've also commanded us to love others the way that we want to be loved, to be merciful, forgiving, gracious, kind. And as we begin to start looking to the manifestations of your attributes in these moral areas of love and mercy and kindness and grace, faithfulness, planet rooted, planted and rooted deeply in our hearts that the Holy Spirit's been given for that reason that we might be conformed to that image and be a people known for being patient, merciful, gracious, and kind. Father, we pray that the foundation laid, we will be able to build upon it and mature and grow under the likeness of your Son. And we thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it threw a lot of meat out to you this morning. I trust that you're able to grab it all and and it will help you to grow and mature in Christ. Amen. God bless.